Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living. Great to see you. Help me do so. Boy, I, I caught the last part of what Dan and Ann were saying. It's true. You're all over here. What happened? I'm going to be preaching like this and then glance. Preach like this and glance. So anyway, I'm glad you're here this morning. Do me a favor. Turn to someone near you and just kind of smile. Wave at them. Unless they're sitting right next to you. Then just say hi to them. Make them feel like they're welcome this morning. Going to invite you to take your Bibles. And today I'd really encourage you, whether it be a Bible, a tablet, a phone, whatever you use for your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 25. Going to continue a series that we've entitled, Tell Me a Story. We have been studying the parables of Jesus uh, throughout this summer, uh, some 46 to 55 parables in the Gospels. The reason I say that is because not everybody's in agreement as to what a parable is. A few weeks ago, I did a message on the, um, the wise man and the foolish man built their house upon the rock and the sand. Not everybody agrees that that's a parable, and so there's a little discrepancy there. Around 33 parables are unique, which means that some parables show up in Matthew and Luke, some show up in Matthew and Mark, but 33 of them are unique. Of those 33, a third, fully a third, have to do with either the return of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the coming kingdom, or his judgment, and judgment doesn't mean always negative, right? Judgment can also be the recipient of reward and what is coming to us. Over a third of them deal with that whole last time, end times uh, understanding. And so we would really be doing a disservice to the study of parables and not take a look at what Jesus says. In fact, in the passage we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 24, 25, it is the, uh, it's called the Mount of Olive uh, Discourse. And the reason they call it that is because it takes place on the Mount of Olives. It takes place in the last week of Jesus's life, Holy Week. We think it's Tuesday night. We, not all of these are specified in Scripture, but we believe it's Tuesday night. And on that evening, as he begins to share about the time of his coming and the end of the age, Jesus shares fully six different parables, three of them dealing specifically with his return. And we're going to take a look at one of those today. It's called the parable of the ten virgins found in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 to 13. Now to set that up today, let me just give you a little bit of a forewarning. Uh, I am a, I'm going to become Professor Phil for the first 15 minutes or so of this message. And then if you like fiery preaching and somebody who's excited, I'm going to do a lot more preaching in the last half of the message. So if you like teaching, enjoy the first half. If you like preaching, hold on to the second half. And you're going to kind of get both today because I really want to set up the last part by understanding the components of the parable today. And I think it should translate well. Now, this all begins in Matthew chapter 24, if you take your Bibles. And in verse 3, Jesus is being asked by his disciples to tell them, when is all of this stuff going to start taking place? And it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, that is not a big hill of olives, it's olive groves. I've been there. It's, it's actually where he goes the last evening of his life. It says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, which means what? Pharisees aren't there. 
These are, these are believers now. These are those who are followers of Jesus, whether they are his, just his 12 disciples or if it included the ladies or if it included the 120 or the 70 that would go out in his name. There was actually more than just 12 who were followers, but there were 12 who became the leaders, 11 later. And it's interesting that as he gathers them together, he is now giving them inside information. And they said, tell us, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So Jesus begins to share with them and teach them and there is a theme that begins to develop and we see it start in verse 36. Jesus says, no one will know about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. So Jesus says, listen, if you're looking for a specific date and you're looking for a specific time, nobody knows that except the Father. Verse 42, he says, therefore keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. Verse 44, he says, so you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you do not expect him. Verse 50, he says it again, keep watch because you do not know, sorry, verse 50, that he, he will come at a time when you do not expect him. Over and over, when the Lord talks about his coming, he helps us to understand that it will be sudden and it will be unexpected. It's going to come in an unexpected time and it will be very sudden, meaning it's not like there's going to be this long progression into it. It will happen like that. In fact, he uses terminology like, as the lightning shows in the sky, so will be the return of the Lord. As a thief comes in the night, so will come the return of the Lord. And so he is simply helping us to understand this general characteristic and he begins to illuminate it and illustrate it with chapter 25 as he gets into the parable of the 10 virgins. So let's read it together and then we'll dig in. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps and the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come, come on out, let's go meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went out with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. But he re later on, the others also came and said, Sir, sir, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I do not know you. Fifth time, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. 
Now, as you look at this particular passage, it's really important to understand some of the components and the aspects of what makes up this parable. Because I tell you that as soon as Jesus shared this story, the disciples got it. Now, there are some parables Jesus later on had to explain for them, but this is not one of those parables because it really is a word picture that they totally got because they understood what a wedding looked like. And that's the first part we want to look at this morning is, what is a typical wedding? And in a Jewish wedding, there are basically four parts to it. Now, you could break it down further than that, but they basically fit into four different categories. The first part of a Jewish wedding is the promise, number one. The promise involves the engagement, and it also in involves the betrothal, and it actually is an official ceremony that that that, that can conveys to individuals that this couple is going to get married. Now, what's interesting is that um, when I got married to Tammy, I asked her to marry me. Dan, I assume you asked Leanne to marry you. Is that how it worked? And I'll bet it was romantic. I'll bet it was incredible. I'll, I'll bet you got down on your knees and you looked up at her and said something to the effect as doves were being released into the background, you are the most beautiful woman in the world. Would you do me the great honor of becoming my wife? It was probably just like that, wasn't it, Leanne? It was pretty similar to that. Can I tell you that a, an engagement wouldn't have been anything like that in this, in this society? Because the bride didn't have anything to do with it. An engagement was an understanding between the father of the bride or the parent of the bride and the father of the groom. That kind of takes the romance out of it a little bit. But the betrothal was actually the couple saying, we agree to this. And there would be a ceremony and they would, they would basically make a covenant to one another that we are going to be a married couple. In Scripture, whenever marriage is discussed, God calls marriage a covenant, not a contract. We always think of it as, hey, two people decide to get married, and they're going to go ahead and get married, and they say, I love you, and I do. But, but actually, marriage is a covenant between three individuals. The couple agrees to the promise, and then God serves as the witness and the binder of the promise. Therefore, he is the covenant witness and therefore, God says, this thing ain't over till I say it's over. And if you're betrothed, even though they are not physically consummating the marriage, even though they're not yet living together, legally it is binding. And the only way it can be broken is either if one of them dies or they go through an official divorce. So putting the little pictures together, if you ever read scripture, and if you go in and you're reading around Christmas time and you read the story of Mary and Joseph and they were betrothed, and when Joseph found out that Mary was with child and he realized he wasn't the one that had been with her, he had it in his mind to divorce her quietly. Even though they had never officially lived in the same home, he had to divorce her because they had committed to one another. The second aspect of a Jewish wedding would have been the, would have been the preparation time. And so when the, when the betrothal takes place, then the groom is given up to a year to prepare the home for the bride to arrive at. The groom would kind of prepare him, his, his home and the bride would prepare herself and she would cut. Kind of, so when it says that they were all expecting the groom was gonna come, but it was taking a long time, it meant it was taking him a long time to get the house ready and to come. And so they got kind of tired of waiting. Now, what I love about this is how much of this looks like the picture of our relationship with God. 
Because one of my favorite passages of Scripture, especially when someone goes through a time of loss, is John chapter 14. And Jesus, on the night that he knew he was going to be betrayed, and within the next day he knew he was going to go to the cross, and he knew he was going to be put to death, he says this to his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go there to prepare a what? Place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, that means I'm going to come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am also. John 14 is a wedding imagery. It's a picture of the wedding and we are the bride and he is the groom. And he says, I promise you that while I'm away, you're still on my mind because I'm getting the place ready for the day when you're going to join me. It's an incredible image, an incredible picture. The third aspect of a Jewish wedding, or the third part, would be the presentation. And this ceremony is not as big as the betrothal would have been. It simply is that the groom begins to come back for the bride. The bridesmaids are get, they're, they're essentially ready. They send a groomsman ahead and says, hey, groom's coming, get yourself ready. And the groom then shows up. The father of the bride takes his hand, puts it into the hand of, or takes his, his uh, daughter's hand, puts it in to the hand of the uh, groom, and that says that this contract co covenant has now been honored. And they take them out, and they do a procession through the city or the village in which a person would uh, live. This was always done at night. Hence, the ladies had lamps. In fact, the word for lamp is actually the same word for torch. And probably the one that it's speaking about are torches. It's the same word that's used in John chapter 18 when it talks about how Jesus, when he was arrested, the guys brought torches. Same word. And a torch, if you've ever, how many of you have ever seen uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay. And I, I, actually, I, I think it's the third one. I think it's the third one. It's uh, the one where um, it's called The Last Crusade. And then there were like two more later. So it wasn't really The Last Crusade. But you know what I'm talking about? And he goes down in the catacombs and there's petrol uh, oil that's in the water. And he's carrying a torch and he takes cloth and he rips it and he dips it into the oil. And then he puts it around the torch. That's very similar to the way they would have had their lamps. And there was actually a little, little vestal that would have been on the side of the torch or been hanging from a wire or something like that. And they would have simply taken it, dipped it in the oil, and then when they want to refuel the lamp or the torch, they just put it around there. That's the imagery. And the reason for it is, is because these processions always took place at night. Because they wanted to take the couple through the town. They wanted there to be this big commotion. They wanted people to see there's a wedding going on because this was an incredible celebration. And the imagery is real. And by the way, it's what Matthew 25 is talking about. There's this presentation coming. 
The groom's coming back. The announcement's been made. The closest thing that I can think to this in my life happened when my sister Sandy and my brother-in-law Craig got married. No other sister did this. No other family did this. And after they got married, uh, in the first month of marriage, there is a tradition from the background that his family was from that you would, it was called a belling. I always thought it was a bellering, but it was. It's called a belling. And you take the couple and you put them in a buggy and you take them through town with cowbells and you're announcing to everyone, hey, Sandy and Craig have gotten married and it was a celebration. Everybody knew they were married. And then the tradition is, is that at the end of the thing, they buy ice cream for everybody, which sounds pretty good to me. And so uh, in the first month of Sandy and Craig's uh, marriage, uh, his family arranged for us to have a belling. And we met at uh, his dad's house and they didn't have a buggy. They put him in a pickup truck. And they put him, and I, this, I don't know if this is just them or what, we had a hog cage. And a hog cage, you can transport animals in it. We put them in the cage, and there was fresh straw in it, and they closed the door, and they're now inside this little cage. And then I, I know his brother did this. I, I'm sure this is what they used. He had a big saw blade, and he had a hammer, and the saw blade was on a rack. And as we went through the big town of New Paris, Indiana, I mean, there had to be 200 people in that town. And uh, we're going through that town with them in the back, and we are, he's beating on that thing. And I don't I guess they didn't have cowbells. And we're announcing to everybody that Sandy and Craig are now husband and wife. And ice cream was given at the end of that thing. And I don't know who paid, but I didn't pay. So it was a good night. That's just how it was. And then the last part of it is the party. Celebration. It's the wedding feast. And the wedding feast begins as soon as the presentation takes place. And it doesn't matter if it's an evening, early evening, or a late evening, but they immediately go to the banquet. They immediately begin to have a celebration. And it would last anywhere from one day to seven days, depending on how wealthy the groom's parents were. Because the wedding and the celebration actually had very little to do as far as celebrating the bride. I mean, certainly she was beautiful and certainly, but the guest of honor was actually the groom. Now we've changed that, haven't we? And that's okay. I think it should be that way. I don't know where my wife's at, but that's the way it should be, okay? And so when we watch the bride come down the aisle, right, everybody's watching her and the groom's standing up here, you know, being all sweaty and everything and they're going like this and, and then the groomsmen are up here making sure he doesn't fall down too bad, you know. It's all about the bride. But when Jesus shared this picture, they got it. Now, there's a couple other parts to it, and we gotta, gotta kind of, because I want to get into the part where we actually apply it. Now you have the bridesmaids. The bridesmaids are anyone who proclaims they know the Lord, okay? That's just simply what I'd say. Now, somebody say, well, these are people who claim to be Christians. These are, no, I just say those who, who say they know the Lord. And it's interesting what he says about them, because he says at that time in the kingdom, 
it will be like 10 virgins. Now, the word virgin doesn't have any morality put behind it. It's just simply these are unmarried women because they were the only ones who could be part of the wedding party. And they took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not give any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in the jars along with their lamps, and the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And something has been really, I have never done a series that I know of, I have never done a series on parables before, first time in 30 years. And I'm noticing something as I'm studying parables, and especially as I'm studying parables we're not even teaching on Sunday morning, is how often those who are believers and those who call themselves believers look so much alike. Um, the rich, the, 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 the foolish man and the rich, um, sorry, the foolish man and the wise man who built their houses. They looked exactly the same. The only time you could tell the difference is when they went through a storm. In this story, the ten virgins all looked alike. They all had torches. They all believed the groom was coming. They all anticipated the groom was coming. They all got tired of waiting. They all fell asleep. The distinction between the wise and the foolish was not known until the groom returned. If you get into the parable of the wheat and the tares, which we have not studied, it is only going to be at the harvest time that you can distinguish between wheat and weeds. If you go into chapter 25, latter part, where it talks about the sheep and the goat, the only time there's a distinction made between the sheep and the goat is at the judgment. Up until then, they look almost exactly the same. And when he calls five of them foolish, he is not being mean, nor is he accusing them of not being smart enough Foolish is always connected to a character issue. And the foolishness is simply this. They said they knew the groom. They said they believed the groom was coming. They knew there would be a day he would return. And they knew that he would come without announcement. And yet they did nothing to prepare themselves. And Jesus is communicating it is the height of foolishness to say that you know something is going to happen and you've done nothing to prepare yourself for it. And their issue was oil. Now what, what is oil? Well, some would say that the oil represents the Holy Spirit because in Scripture, 
Uh, oil is often used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Some would say that no, this is transformational grace. It just means that you have, that God has done a work in your heart and there's actually been some transformation taking place in your life. As you say you believe in the Lord, there's actually some changes taking place. I would say both because change cannot happen without the Holy Spirit doing the change. That's why Paul says you cannot, have the, you cannot have Jesus, you cannot have the Son of God unless you also have his Spirit. It just simply means this. We don't make change happen in ourselves. We, we, we accept the change that God wants to do in our life through his Holy Spirit. And he's just simply saying is that they could talk the talk, but there was nothing that indicated preparation at all. And then the last component we will look at is the groom. And the groom is Jesus, Son of God. And then he says about Jesus himself, he says, at midnight, the cry rang out. And he said, here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. The lamps are about to go out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to the one who sells uh, oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went out, and they went to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came and said, Sir, sir, open the door for us. We're late to the party, essentially. And he replied, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. And I, you know, the, the question I have is, why did you have to come at midnight for? Now, I will tell you, there was a day when midnight was nothing to me. I stayed up to midnight all the time, even until just, you know, eight, ten years ago. I, I was up to midnight every night. I mean, I was always up at midnight, and I just got to tell you today, that's just not who I am. I, I go to bed way earlier. I go to bed earlier because I get up earlier, and, and uh, usually sometime between eight and ten o'clock, Tammy will tap me on the shoulder on my recliner and say, hey, are you going to bed? I'm going to bed because I've nodded off probably watching something and, and I go up or I'll nod off watching. But I, I'm just going to be honest with you. If you knock on my door at, 10, or at, a, at 12 o'clock at midnight, you better have a good reason. I've had people knock at my door at midnight and I've had people with good reasons and I've had real, I don't want to characterize them, but they were dumb reasons. Either there better be flames coming out of my house or there's something that happened outside that I need to be aware of. So of course coming at midnight they're asleep. What else are you going to do? It is interesting how often the Lord decides to show up at midnight. For those of you who know a little bit of Scripture, the story of the exodus of the Israelites. When the Lord brought the angel of death for the Passover and he began to give them the exodus out of Egypt and slavery. Do you know when that took place? About midnight. Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 11, he says, hey, a friend showed up for bread. You remember what time he showed up for bread? About midnight. Paul and Silas are sitting in a jail in chains, singing songs 
and hymns. Guess what time the angel showed up? About midnight. God loves to show up at the most unexpected, sudden times to reveal his glory. And so while I am not in any way saying that that is the day or the hour, I know Jesus is trying to communicate it will be sudden and it will be unexpected. So what do we learn and why are we studying this? There are some powerful takeaway truths and the first one is simple but it's powerful. Jesus is coming again. Point blank, exclamation mark, period. It is not a question of if, but when. And it is the great hope of the Christian church from the earliest church and even to today that Jesus is actually coming again. Now you might be saying, what's the big deal? I mean, when I think of salvation, I think of the fact that my sins are paid for. And I think about the fact that someday I'm gonna be in heaven, but if we were like three quarters of the rest of the Christians in the world, we would be looking toward the day of salvation with tremendous anticipation. Because three quarter of the Christians in the world are in poverty or they are in persecution or they are in dire straits of one form or another. And so when they see the return of Christ, it for them is a promise and a celebration. And throughout history, until about 150 years ago, that's the way it was. Believers were anticipating and celebrating the return of Christ. Why? Because they knew that there were better days yet ahead. And it is hard when your 401k is bloated and you've got two or three homes to choose between and you've got three or four vehicles you can choose from. And by the way, none of those are bad or wrong. But it's hard sometimes because we forget that there is yet a better day coming. And oh, by the way, if you don't believe in the return of Christ, I would just simply say this. I guarantee this. He's either coming to us or we're going to him because all of us someday are going to pass away. We will all stand before him. Number two. His coming is going to be unexpected and it will be sudden. So Jesus in the previous chapter uses imagery. He says like lightning in the sky, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Like a thief who shows up in the night, so will be the return of the Son. Now I would love to get into all the nuances of it because I love teaching this stuff. And we could talk about the rapture of the church and we could talk the return to reign. But here's, we're, just, we're trying to just study the parable. We're trying to just see what the parable says and we understand that his coming, in fact he says, he uses, an, he uses a word picture earlier in Matthew chapter 24 and I just want you to hear what it says. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving into marriage right up until the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. 
I know these sound like harsh words. We do such a disservice to Jesus when we only make him out to be meek, loving, gentle, and kind. His love is willing to say a few hard things because he loves us so much. And the good news is so good only because the bad news is so bad. And so he loves us. He is not mean in what he's saying. He is warning. This is serious stuff. Number three, salvation, I learn, is non-transferable. I cannot give my salvation to another person. I can share my faith. I can share the reason for my hope. I can do everything I can praying for them and interceding for them. I can do everything I can to try to explain and win them to the Lord. But my mom and dad's faith cannot be my faith. I need my own. And grandma and grandpa's faith is not my faith. It's got to be my own. And my sibling's faith cannot be my faith. It's got to be my own. Every generation and every single person needs to have a personal encounter with God, period. And I can't give you my oil. And you can't give me your oil. Which leads me to number four is that whatever situation you're in, when we meet the Lord, it's permanent. Our position when we meet the Lord, whether it's his coming or whether it's our going, wherever you are is where you are. The door was shut. They begged to get in. He said, I don't know you. The ark was shut. The people begged in. He said, you can't. And one of the great... Um, as a pastor, one of the things that I find so unfortunate in today, and this is not picking on one particular person or anything like that, but I am noticing a trend, even within what folks would call themselves um, Protestant conservative circles. But there is this growing sense that God is so loving that God could not possibly stand to allow anyone to spend eternity away from him. And so even if you don't acknowledge the Lord or if you're following the wrong path, the great news is, is that in eternity, he'll give you another chance. And so everyone will ultimately be in heaven. And it is a wonderful, beautiful promise that is a complete lie. It is completely unbiblical. There is absolutely nothing to support that in Scripture. And yet people are living with this sense of, hey, I'll get my oil later. I'll get it in eternity. When I get the second or third chance, nobody can presume upon that. But number five is also true. This conversation is supposed to always be an encouragement to believers. This is never supposed to be scary. 
I will tell you today, if you committed your heart to Jesus Christ, you're walking in fellowship with him, there is no, there is no reason to fear this whatsoever. All this junk going on in the world today, do I want to be cautious? Sure. But do I walk in fear? Absolutely not. None of this should be that. None of this should cause fear. Be wise. Don't be silly about it. But I don't have to walk in. What does Paul say? He says, encourage each other with this stuff. These are promises to you. The Lord's provision for you. And I don't know. The only way I know to be ready for the unexpected day is to be ready every day. Amen? I don't know any other way to do it. That just means, you know what? I'm not going to put off someday right before. No, no, no. If the Lord is speaking in my heart today, I'm going to respond today because that's the only way I know to be ready for that day that is coming. I find it so beautiful that the Lord talks about his relationship with us like it's a wedding. And that he wants to have a marriage relationship with us. He's prepared, right? He's made a promise to us. He's coming again. He's getting the place ready. He, it's this beautiful picture. He says, I've paid everything for you. Except by invitation. And this morning in the first service, I just... Because I'm, I'm planning weddings right now. They've all gotten delayed and all that kind of stuff. And I planned one yesterday. And I was thinking about the couple. And, you know, the groom. The groom's down here. And he, he's just, you know. You know, and I always go up to him. And I, I do something to kind of loosen up. And then the, the guys are all standing up here with the groom waiting for the bride. And I always tell the guys to stand with their hands like this. Because, honestly, for guys that are built like me, this is not a good look. And so I always tell them, do this. Always put the hands in front. It always makes the guys who they're having a hard time with that thing going shut anyway. Always looks way better. Just a little secret for you. Guys, when you get married, always put the hands in front. Coming. Dun, 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 dun. Nothing. Dun, 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 dun. Nothing. And the groom is ready and the congregation's assembled and the party is ready to happen and we're all excited and she never showed. So much so that in the very last words of the entire Bible, five verses before Boom, the end of the Bible. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears me say, come. Whoever is thirsty, what an inclusive word. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the, of the water of life. It's paid for. It's planned. It's there. You can't buy it. 
but you do have to accept it. And Jesus makes an invitation. Come. This is too big of a deal not to come. So Father, um, I thank you that your words to us, generally I love it because we get to just simply celebrate what we have in you. But Father, can I, can I for a moment speak to the one who's listening and you've been wearing a mask and it's, it's not a physical mask, it's just a mask. And you know the words. And this is in no way to make anybody double think their salvation. It's just simply, I don't know your heart, but you know your heart. And you can say it with your lips, but your heart is far from him. And he says, come. That doesn't have to be your reality. Come. And some of you right now have faces of people and you're not being judgmental. It's just people you love and you love them with all your heart and you just know they're not prepared. And you're just once again renewing a commitment and a desire to do everything, everything you can that they have the opportunity to come. Jesus right now I'm just and some are watching online and some are watching later in the week and some are going to find this a year from now but when the time is right spirit of the living God I believe your invitation is take off the mask and accept my invitation to come into a relationship Jesus, I want to say I'm sorry for all the stuff I've done and for the game I've been playing. And it's not because I'm afraid, although there's a fair amount of that. I, I really want my relationship with you to be real. And so I do ask you to forgive me, but what I'm asking you to forgive is the fact that I haven't been honest with you. And I want you to come in and make me a new person. Pastor Phil talked about transformational grace. Transform me. Make me the man of God or the woman of God you want me to be. Today by faith, I, I say yes to you. And tomorrow by faith, I'm going to say yes to you. And the next day by faith, I'm going to walk with you until that day when I stand before you and you take me home. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving me enough to say hard things at the right time because I know you love me. I say yes in Jesus' name. Amen. Colonial Woods Missionary Church presents Keys to Confident Living.